Now, our definition of transformative adaptation is a little bit loose.、Um, yes. <laughs> but in this instance, we'll be talking about properties that get adapted into either a movie or, in some cases, a musical、um, or a TV show or, you know, or something like that. That is, that takes the original material as like a launching point. But either transforms the text in some way or makes the adaptation about something different entirely. So it therefore be kind of becomes its own thing, for the lack of、mm-hmm. a better word.、Um, you know, like obvious examples that we talked about that Kelly and I were discussing before we his, <laughs> pressed record was like Clue, the movie adaptation of Clue. <laughs> yeah, which is literally. Derived from a board game, <laughs> which is pretty transformative because the board game only has the very loosest,、uh, you know, of story that changes somewhat every time you play it.、Mm-hmm. And they took that concept and made it into a movie. One of my favorite movies, by the I way. I love that movie. I love that movie. It's so good.、Um, and the ending, I think there are three different endings too to that movie.、Mm-hmm. So. Um, I do love Clue, and it, it's, it's hard to call that an adaptation. I mean, it is technically because you're adapting a board game, but like, it's hard to call that an adaptation because it, there isn't really a story or a property to begin with. It's sort of like the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, which、mm-hmm. I really enjoy the first one anyway.、Um, yeah, the first one's pretty good. The first one's pretty awesome. I think mostly because it knows exactly what kind of movie it is. <laughs> It's not, you know, this like super serious film. And all the little touches and nods to the ride were, you know, in there, but, you know, pretty subtle or funny or clever or things like that. And, but again, the story, there isn't a story to the ride of, of Pirates of the Caribbean. You just like on a boat, you go through stuff, you see pirates, <laughs> their treasure hoard, you know, <laughs> like. Um, there isn't actually a story to the ride, but the movie takes that as an inspiration and then adds a narrative and characters and things like that to it.、Um, you know, now that I think about it, like a lot of the rides in Disneyland, I suppose, is, particularly those in Fantasyland, you could almost consider transformative adaptations. Huh. Well, not quite. Maybe that's. More of a subject for the episode we're going to talk about next week, which is transmedia. But like all the Fantasyland rides are based on the movies. So there's a Snow White ride, there is a Peter Pan ride, there is a Alice in Wonderland ride.、Um, I'm thinking of the ones, of course, in Disneyland, which is the one I grew up with, not Disney World, which is, in my opinion, a whole other park. So, <laughs>、um, but So, the, the transformative adaptation. So, we're going to try and think of a couple of examples 
and whether or not we think that they work or if we like them, if we don't like them, if we think it's a betrayal of the original work itself. The one I was thinking of initially was actually the Anne of Green Gables adaptation from the 80s. Mm, the miniseries. Yeah, the one that was produced by, I think, Canadian television with Megan Follows. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I think, uh, I don't know actually if it was a couple of episodes, maybe like four episodes. The first one, Anne of Green Gables, is pretty faithful to the book, Anne of Green Gables. It's pretty mm-hmm. faithful, you know, all the sort of episodes are in there and um keeps pretty close to the characterization of the characters. And then they made a sequel (laughs) Um, called, and they didn't adapt Anne of Avonlea, which is the next book in the Anne of Green Gables series. Like you would think that that would be like a natural evolution. They instead adapted mostly Anne of the Island plus Anne of Windley Poplar's with a little bit of Anne of Avonlea thrown in there, and they just called this next miniseries Anne of Green Gables, colon, The Continuing Story. Um, and then, of course, like years and years and years and years later, they did um, the third Anne of Green Gables movie, the one that's actually based on Rilla of Ingleside. So, um, mm-hmm. But we're kind of, I'm going to focus anyway on the second one. And like, even though I have read all of the Anne, Anne books multiple times, some of them less than others, but I am a huge fan of the Anne of Green Gables books. I also still really like the continuing story adaptation. I don't know why. Is that the one where she's like a spy? No, that's the third one. <laughs> okay. I'm so confused. I don't think I've seen the other one then. It's okay. So this one, it's the same cast, obviously, as the first Anne of Green Gables movie. She, so Gilbert goes off to medical school and she is sort of feeling kind of out of place in Avonlea now. Like a lot of her friends are getting married and sort of moved on. She doesn't really know what to do. So she gets an invitation from uh, Miss Stacy, which was one of her teachers. Um, It's like, oh, you should come teach in this town called Kingston. There's a position open. And so she goes and she teaches there. So it's like a lot of the Anne of Windy Poplar storyline here um, because she and Gilbert are separated, but they're also not like romantically inclined at all or like entangled because Gilbert proposes at the beginning of this adaptation. She turns him down and uh, that's kind of where the movie sort of or the adaptation kind of goes. And then she goes to Kingston. She makes friends and like, of course, in her Anne way, transforms the town Um And she gets romantically involved with the father of one of her students. It's like completely different from the series storyline wise. Um, And then, of course, climactically, the father of one of her students like proposes to her and she's like, no, you know, and then she goes back home to Avonlea and then she finds out that Gilbert is dying and is sick. And then that's when she comes to realize, oh, no, I'm in love with Gilbert. And it kind of ends the same way that Anne of the Island did. But it's a very different adaptation. It it literally just like takes all these storylines from these disparate books and kind of mashes them together, uh, <laughs> and like doesn't necessarily create wholesale entirely new characters, but like merges several characters together to create like one composite character. 
which is like the father of the student that she kind of is romantically entangled with. Like he's a combination of Roy Gardner and one of the characters from Anne of Windy Poplars. So I can tell this is probably one you won't like. Yeah, sounds super weird. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why I have such fondness for it. I I don't even know if it's trans... I mean, it is transformative in that it's like an entirely different story. It's just like mm-hmm. completely different story. It's almost like the creators had fanfic, made like fanfic of the of the books and they mashed it, remixed it together however they wanted. Um, but I, I don't know. Like I said, I really loved it. Maybe because I had such a crush on Gilbert and he, she still ended up with him at the end. And I was like, yay. I was pretty young when I watched them. And so maybe that too, like the nostalgia glasses colors, my fondness for this adaptation. Um, but that was one that I was thinking of literarily that I would consider transformative. Um, another example Kelly and I were talking about was actually The Wizard of Oz. Mm. Which has gone through several adaptations. Like, if you kind of trace the line, there is obviously the book, The Wonderful Wizard of Oz by L. Frank Baum, and then the movie, The Wizard of Oz by MGM with, what's her name? Judy Garland as Dorothy. And then Years upon years upon years upon years later, Gregory Maguire writes Wicked, which is a book Mm -hmm. based on Wizard of Oz. And then there is a movie, not a movie, a musical adaptation of Wicked. Mm -hmm. And there's The Wiz, too, somewhere in there. And The Wiz. Um, So let's, let's start with, I guess, the movies. Because it's really like, if you think about it, the Wizard of Oz movie is what actually people are adapting from, even though yeah, it very itself, few people are going back to the source material. To the source material, unless it's the Return to Oz movie, um, which, which is terrifying. I love that movie. Of course you do. <laughs> of course you do. I mean, it still terrifies me, but like, I love that movie. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's the only one that actually really faithfully draws on the source material of uh, L. Frank Baum's books. But the Wizard of Oz movie and the book The Wonderful Wizard of Oz are just, I guess, like, loosely plot-based. Like, loosely plot-wise, you can say that they're similar. Yeah. But they're kind of about two totally different things. And the the thing for me is that the movie The Wizard of Oz added an emotional level to the book that, or at least that the book does not have. Because really The Wizard of Oz is a story about Dorothy, you know, and she doesn't really like her life on her Kansas farm and then has this magical adventure or possibly a dream. Um, And then she realizes at the end that she really just, just wants to come home and that being home is the right place to be. Um, there are things you can do in a movie that you can't do in a book. Like, obviously, like, all the farmhands and the people in her life show up in Oz on film that they didn't in the book, necessarily. But every other adaptation of The Wizard of Oz or any of the Oz properties is more or less going off of the movie because it was so iconic. Um, so then let's talk about the Wiz adaptation. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, that is a musical um, that I think appeared on the stage first, and then they made a film adaptation of the stage musical starring Diana Ross and Michael Jackson um, as Dorothy and the Scarecrow, respectively. The Wiz is essentially the story of The Wizard of Oz as told in the movie, um, performed traditionally by black actors um, with completely different music, some different characters, um, some slightly different plot stuff um, that's been changed slightly. Uh, and it's it's really recently they did a live musical version mm-hmm. of it as have been the traditions. Um, they've been doing more and more live musicals ever since um, the sound of music with Carrie Underwood. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry. Um, yes. And so, uh, yeah, that was, which was actually a pretty good production. Um, I thought it was one of the most successful of the live musicals that they've done over the past few years. So if there's anywhere to check that out online and you haven't seen it yet, maybe, maybe look into that because that was really great. Um, yeah. And it is unique in that it is made for a completely different audience. It is made for and by black people essentially. Mm -hmm. And it, and because of that, um, it's very different from the original Wizard of Oz, which was incredibly white, both in cast, um, and, you know, directed toward a pretty white audience. Not even direct. I think the themes (laughs) as well in the original Wizard of Oz aren't really, weren't really relevant to, um, a lot of, black audiences I think um mm-hmm. I have mixed reaction or have mixed feelings about the movie The Wiz I think some yeah. of the performances are uneven I think the actual f- filming of that movie is also like it's not really done by somebody who knows how to film a musical yeah but some of yeah. the performances are great I love the music from The Wiz the music from The Wiz it's great. It's fantastic. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> it's really, really... If you haven't heard Ease On Down the Road, it's such a good, catchy song. Mm-hmm. Um, so then, let's... And that is transformative because you're taking a movie, essentially, even though, it, again, the movie is based on a book, but you're taking the movie and you are transforming it to be about something else, about something that the original mm-hmm. source material is not about. Because The Wiz is really about the black experience, particularly the mm-hmm. black experience in the 70s. And so that in itself is what I consider transformative about The Wiz. So then let's kind of fast forward to, I guess, the 90s or the 2000s. Must be the 90s when the book was written. Yeah, I think the book was in the late 90s, Wicked. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Wicked was a book by Gregory Maguire that focused on the story of the Wizard of Oz from the perspective of the Wicked Witch of the West. She was the protagonist of the books. And the... The book 
is almost a prequel of sorts. The majority of the story takes place before the events of The Wizard of Oz, Mm -hmm. when the Wicked Witch of the West, who is named Elphaba for L. Frank Baum, um, you know, the Wicked Witch of the West doesn't actually have a given name in the original source material. So Greg and Marie McGuire made one up uh, in homage to the author. And it follows her on her journey through school to learn magic and how she's ostracized because of her skin and kind of her personality also. And she befriends Glinda, who is then Galinda. Um, and... The book has currents of it that are, you know, kind of about their friendship, but really it it delves into a lot of political treatment. There's a whole thing about how animals in the universe are um are what is the correct word? Like anthropomorphic, but not really. They're human esque. They're yeah, they're they're teachers and they're yeah, and they're you know, in society. They're animals they with a capital A, and yeah. animals with a capital A are thinking, reasoning beings. Um, they are people with consciousness and emotions and feelings. Mm-hmm. And in the Oz that is created in the world of Greg and Maguire, they are second class citizens. And it is a very political book because it is a lot. Alphabet becomes an animal activist, which is Mm -hmm. kind of hilarious when you say it that when I say it out loud now. Yeah. (laughs) um, Considering the actions Alphabet takes in that book. Um, But it's a very political book. It's really about the disenfranchised in many ways because Alphabet is ostracized for her skin, for um, who she is, like personality wise, and, you know, her feeling sympathy for and you know for the animal allegiance to yeah yeah. for the animal cause it's really a story about being disenfranchised and then kind of towards the end of the book is when we kind of get the dorothy coming to oz and blah 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 blah. and really alphabet's reputation as the wicked witch of the west comes from this whole like animal activist thing that people Mm -hmm. demonize her fight for social justice and turn her into the evil witch, which is, like I said, it's a very political book. I have mixed feelings about it. (laughs) I think it's, yeah, I think it's quite good, but it's also strange, especially when you did grow up on the wizard of Oz movie as I did. Yes. Um, because it, it just twists Oz into less of a fantasy place and more of a place that is really just more of a metaphorical place for things that happen in our real world. Of course, I read this in high school, so I think maybe mm-hmm. I should revisit it because I think it's got more nuances to it that I didn't pick up then. So yeah. that is Wicked by Gregory Maguire. And then the musical. Mm-hmm. Super different. <laughs> Very different. Very, very different. <laughs> Super different. And for me personally, more successful. I, I agree. Don't know if it's I love it. Just, I think it's great. It is about the friendship between um, Alphaba and Glinda. And that's what the musical's about. It's about the evolution of their relationship. And the animal activism kind of comes in as like plot points, but that's not the heart of of the story. And the reason for the animal activism is kind of weird. 
Like that whole yeah. storyline is actually kind of like awkwardly shoehorned into the musical. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it's really only there to kind of like further Alphaba's Alphaba and Glinda's relationship with each other. Really, yeah. it's just kind of there. It's not the point of the book, point of the musical, the way it was in the book. It's just kind of there to like move Alphaba and Glinda's relationship along. Mm-hmm. You have basic characters from. Gregory Maguire's book in there. Alphaba apparently has a sister named Nessa mm-hmm. Rose, and she's a character in the musical. She's also different. Um, she has mm-hmm. a disability in the book, but her disability is different on stage. Um, you have the character Fiero, who is not in the any of the original Elfink Bomb books. Um, who is the romantic lead in the Wicked musical? Well, he's in that. In that, he becomes the scarecrow. But that's only a musical thing. It's not in the book. Is it really not in the book? It's not in the book. I. It's been so long since I've read the book that I honestly don't remember. No, she. Wow, that's really clever. Then. <laughs> well, there is a nod to it in the musical that the whole scarecrow thing because Fero is killed for, mm-hmm. you know, sort of the same reasons he is dragged off and essentially implied that he's beaten to death for right. his activism and his association with Alphaba. And Alphaba, who at this point is starting to kind of go off the rails in the book, you know, deludes herself into thinking Fero might still be alive. That's right. Um, and then deludes herself into thinking that maybe he's become the scarecrow, but it's pretty clear in the text that Fiero is dead. But in the yeah. musical, spoiler, if you guys haven't seen it, Fiero is alive. Sorry, <laughs> Sorry guys. Um, there's, there's like really interesting things like in, in the, and, and I think the musical actually ties the story back to the original movie Wizard of Oz as well mm-hmm. as the books more than the actual book Wicked is related yes. to that property. Yes. Yeah, I think Wicked definitely calls back to the original Wizard of Oz movie significantly. There's a line, I'm not going to remember the exact thing, but there's a line when they're at a party drinking punch and they're discussing what's in the punch and she's like, there's lemons and cherries and pears. Oh my. <laughs> just lions and tigers and bears and um, there's lots of cute little callbacks that way. Defying Gravity actually has the first seven notes from Somewhere Over the Rainbow because that is the uh-huh. maximum amount of notes you can call back to in a song before it's copyright infringement. <laughs> mm. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of, there's a kind of a greater relationship because there are other plot things that happen that bring in characters from, uh, the Wizard of Oz movie, like the Tin Man, the Scarecrow, mm-hmm. Cowardly Lion. They are all actually in the Wicked musical, um, that, and they aren't really, they are in the book. At least the Lion, I think is in the book, but I don't remember if the Tin Man is or not. Um, so... I also think it's more successful because it gives us something to root for emotionally. Yes. Because it's really hard to root for Alphaba in the book. (laughs) It is really hard to root for Alphaba in the book. She is not likable. Which I don't think you always have to like 
your protagonists. I, I think there's plenty of unlikable characters that are still compelling, but it's hard to root for her, I think. It's because she doesn't actually form emotional relationships with characters, aside from Fiero, and even then, Fiero is kind of different. It's less of a romantic relationship. I mean, it is a romantic relationship, but it's not like a great romance. It's not, you know, it's not what she had wanted from her life. You know, it's all this sort of stuff that's kind of like, meh. So for me, the relationship between Alphaba and Glinda in the musical is something that I can hold on to. And because they both grow and change, whereas I don't think Alphaba really grows and changes in the novel. And yeah, no, Mm-mm. she's kind of from the start ostracized, and then stays ostracized and becomes an animal activist and dies an animal activist essentially. So she doesn't actually, to in my opinion, exhibit personal growth in any kind of way. Whereas, actually, the character I think that has the most personal growth in the musical is Glenda, who starts out as this kind of like shallow, privileged. Um, slightly mean girl, very self-centered uh, girl, and then she becomes friends with Elphaba, and through that grow, through that friendship, kind of grows and becomes a better person with more empathy for people. Um, so that gave me a reason to care about Elphaba because she cares about Elphaba. For me, like the emotional entry point has always been Galinda. She's my favorite. <laughs> Yeah, she's the best. I love her songs. I just love her in general. She's great. Only one of two decent roles for actual sopranos on Broadway. Yeah. Not a ton. I guess three if you count Eliza. (laughs) So it's, it's, it's Glinda, Christine from Phantom, and Eliza. And those are the three decent roles for sopranos. Everybody else, not really. Yeah. (laughs) Unfortunately. Yeah, it was also really a big deal in terms of musicals because it was a musical about the relationship, the friendship between two women. And while not exclusively, most musicals um, either focus on a romantic pairing Mm -hmm. or some kind of other obstacle with a romantic pairing on the side and and wicked has a romantic you know storyline on the side um with fiero but this the heart of the story really is about the friendship between these two women and it's it's hard to find musicals with two lead roles for women that are equally prominent And it's hard to find musicals that focus on women and women's relationships. And this has changed a lot. I mean, Wicked is well over a decade old at this point. Oh, God. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And so, you know, it's certainly ushered a lot of new great things in. And there's a lot more um, women-centric musicals out now than there maybe were at the time. And that's not to say that classic musicals don't exist that tell women's stories. They do, but, but this was really huge. Um, and I remember reading interviews with both Adina Menzel and Kristen Chenoweth who originated the roles and they were talking about how incredible it was that, um, 
that there were two female leads in a musical that usually you have, you know, your lead actress and then your supporting actress Mm -hmm. and then that's it. Um, so in that way it was also really transformative because it really did new things with the Mm -hmm. genre. So gosh, yeah, I wicked premiered on Broadway the year I moved to New York. So God, now that Mm -hmm. it makes me feel old. Yeah. I saw it in previews. I saw it before I lived in New York. My very dear friend, Chris, and I were in college and we, he was in college in Boston and I was in college in upstate New York and we met in New York City and we tried to get lottery tickets to see Wicked and we tried for three days and we didn't win. And so at the last day, um, we were able to buy will call. So like leftover tickets that nobody picked up and we paid like... I don't know, like four hundred dollars each. <laughs> I like, I essentially emptied my bank account <laughs> to go see Wicked in previews, but I saw it and it was incredible. I it's saw so it for good. five bucks because student you lotto. You won the lottery. Well, student <gasps> lotto. The buildings oh. at NYU would have a block mm-hmm. of tickets. I mean, they're like nosebleed seats, but like, right? You can you know enter basically the student lottery and not necessarily the like theater lottery, the show lottery, yeah. Um, so I, I won tickets to see Wicked that year, also Avenue Q that year, because they were both nice. opening on Broadway in 2003. Anyway, so that's yeah. Wicked as a, as a work of transformative fiction. Um, also becoming a movie. So then it's like, this, this is the gift that keeps giving in terms of how much it keeps transforming, because like I said, it, it went from... A book by L. Frank Baum from like 1900 to a movie in the 30s to another movie musical, basically a musical adaptation on stage to, you know, a book to another stage adaptation to now a movie adaptation of the stage musical. So it just keeps on going. Um, So we may talk about the Wicked movie in the future. We'll see. Mm -hmm. Uh, So then... Other transformative adaptations that I wanted to talk about was, so Wicked is an example. So if Anne of Green Gables was an example of basically remixing, essentially, maybe that's what I would call, it's a remix. You you know, take all the elements that you like and kind of stick them together as an adaptation. Then we had Wicked, which is, it changes what the story is about, more or less. And then, then we have the case of something like, Dexter, the TV show, which I don't know if you've seen it. I have not. It's actually quite good. It's uneven in places. Um, but the, so these are based on a series of books by Jeff Lindsay. The first one is called Darkly Dreaming Dexter. And actually the first season of Dexter, the premise of the, sh- the books and the show is that Dexter is a serial killer. Um, and he, but he only kills criminals that have gotten away with their crimes. So the, he has an urge to kill, but he only, but the only way he can get his urge out essentially is to become a vigilante. Um, and the first season of Dexter and the book, Darkly Dreaming Dexter are actually pretty close. They, um, Hew pretty closely together until you get to the end. And the ending 
of the show and the ending of the book are two entirely different things. So essentially, after the first season, Dexter becomes an alternate universe. And so that's kind of, to me, a transformative adaptation because you're like, well, I like this one element of the thing that I'm adapting, which is essentially the character of Dexter. Um, but And then I'm going to make it something else. I have not read the books in the series beyond the first one. And I think they are more kind of police procedural type books, my assumption is, really. But um, the show is not really a police procedural at all. (laughs) Um, And it's really about a man, a very, very morally complicated man, who says he doesn't have any feelings, he doesn't have any empathy, but he has to pretend. And so he lives by the rules that his foster father gave him. So the whole show is really an evolution. Can somebody without empathy, the way he is, be human? Can, what if, does he feel things? Does, you know, is it, does that make him somebody who can live in society? And it's a really, it's a, I do recommend Dexter, like I said, it's quite good. Again, very uneven, but very, very good. So, like the ones that are kind of like a starting point, I do consider transformative. I'm trying to think if there's anything else that does something similar. I have not seen True Blood, but I saw the first season of True Blood, but not the others, and I read the first book. My understanding is that True Blood did deviate somewhat, but was in other ways somewhat faithful. I guess a lot of a lot of TV shows are kind of the starting point of, you know, a lot of the what I call the alternate universe. There's like mm-hmm. you know, book canon and then there's show canon and the and the two are kind are two are different. I believe you know, like Gossip Girl, Pretty Little mm-hmm. Liars, The Hundred, I think also deviates from the books. Yeah. Um I think if there's anything else that I'm you know, the so or like the Shadow Hunters TV show mm-hmm. and the Mortal Instruments by Cassandra Clare, I think there is a definitely like a show canon and a book canon, so they become alternate universes mm-hmm. of each other. Um and I only know that simply because or like the MCU, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, is essentially its own universe its alternate universe or its own timeline from what is happening in the comics. Um, So, and I actually think you have this in fandom terms. If like, if you're searching for fanfic of any of these properties that we're talking about, they will sometimes specify this is like this universe. It's, you know, it's show canon, it's book canon, it's comics canon. Um, I can't even follow comics canon anyway, because there's like a bizarre... Yeah, like, like, comics are like phoenix. It's like they rise from the ashes and die and rise again. They just... So many different... Yeah. Um, so that is kind of another form of, I think, of transformative adaptation that I can think of. So, I mean... It's it's interesting to me, like, if I were to have a transformative adaptation of my work, I I guess it would depend on what the adaptation is, <laughs> of course. Um, but I, I actually 
actually like them. I, I like when adaptations become its own thing. And it, and as in the case of Wicked, I do think it's more, like sometimes it is more successful for me than the book. And not because I think the people who are adapting the work know better or know the story better. It's just that they're, the story that they're telling using these characters and premise as a starting point is sometimes just more successful for me than the work that it's mm-hmm. based on. Yeah, it resonates more with you. Mm-hmm. So I, I do like transformative ad- adaptations. I Like I said, I as I said in the previous podcast episode, I don't need an adaptation to be faithful. Um, and it does depend, because if it's a straight adaptation of, of a novel, I do want it to be faithful to the spirit, if not the letter. But if I sense that the adaptation is doing something different if that they are trying to transform the work then i'm a little bit more okay with that too Mm -hmm. so do we have any sort of final thoughts or uh, other movie adaptations or tv show adaptations or musical adaptations we can talk about kelly and i could talk about musicals for a long time so yeah yeah i mean there's there's nothing that's really sticking out in my mind. I mean, you know, one that just popped into my head actually was uh, Breakfast at Tiffany's, which is pretty different than the novella by Truman Capote. Um, the ending is different significantly, but in a lot of other ways too. The the movie is is much more essentially kind of a romance between these two characters. They end up together at the end and, um, you know, it's kind of a Tiffany, um, not Tiffany, <laughs> Holly Golightly is, uh, kind of one of the original Manny pick Matt. I am just like, not <laughs> Holly Golightly is like one of the original manic pixie dream girls. Um, you know, and the narrator, is he named? I can't remember whether or not he's named, but the, the male protagonist, you know, kind of falls in love with her in the movie and in the movie. Anyway, he says he's Paul, but she calls him Fred. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And that's pretty different from the book, which is a little darker and, um, much darker actually, if you, (laughs) if you look at it in certain ways, um, and, and about different things, you know, I think the movie is kind of quirky and funny and, uh, romantic and the book is, is darker and is melancholy and is, um, you know, kind of looks underneath the, the facade or the, you know, the performance that Holly puts on to some of the more Ever since unsavory. I found out that he wrote Holly Golightly with Marilyn Monroe in mind. It's very different, it's isn't a it? very different story. Mm-hmm. Very different. And it is much more tragic because of that. It's very tragic. <laughs> yeah, it's really, it's, it's quite different. So that one just kind of popped into my head at the end there as, as an adaptation, the movie adaptation, 
being pretty, pretty different. And Truman Capote was actually not at all happy with no, the he movie. Didn't, he didn't like the movie at all. <laughs> but, um, but I do think the movie is successful, obviously. I mean, that, that image of Audrey Hepburn standing in front of the Tiffany's window with the cigarette holder is iconic. That will always be, um, you know, an iconic film. But it, it does something very different than the book does. You could consider, I would consider some of the Disney movies transformative, too. Yeah, they, yeah. (laughs) I mean, particular. I mean, again, like, the retelling of fairy tales inherently is going to be transformative because of who is telling the story and what they want to tell about the story. But, like, The Little Mermaid has a happy ending, where, of course, the original fairy tale does not. <laughs> nope. <laughs> um, Beauty and the Beast is actually fairly faithful, I think. Mm-hmm. Aladdin is um, faithful-ish. <laughs> <laughs> Ish, really? Um, I guess Little Mermaid is really what I'm thinking about. as Or yeah. The Hunchback. The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Yep. Which I, full disclosure, I love that movie. Like, a lot. It has flaws. Um, for sure, it has flaws. The gargoyles being chief amongst them. <laughs> um, but Hunchback is sort of faithful, I think, to the spirit of the novel, but not even. Like, the villain is different. The heroes are different. Everyone is, like, much more likable, except for Frollo, who is made much more unlikable in the story. Um, Because the actual book of The Hunchback of Notre Dame is not really a narrative as we think of it today. It's not a story about a character from beginning to end. It's really a a novel kind of about Notre Dame and the things that happen around Notre Dame and what what the cathedral sees, you know, and the denizens that live there and are a part of it. Whereas the movie makes it Quasimodo story and makes it about somebody who is an outsider because of the way he looks and having to prove himself. And it's really somebody who has voluntarily sheltered himself away from the world because he's been told and because he's been abused that nobody would like him, nobody would want him. And then finally having the courage to step out by the end of the movie. I do love this movie a lot, so I will defend it. So when people are like, oh, I don't like it, I was like, no, 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 you're all wrong. It's a great movie. Uh, <laughs> beautiful animation, everything. Um, again, except for the gargoyles. Um, that one also had a stage adaptation that is different from the movie. This There was a stage adaptation of the Disney version? Yes. I didn't know that. It's excellent. Um, it, it's, well, it's a German language musical, so <laughs> that's why. <laughs> they staged it in Berlin. Um, so in the and, the, and the, actually, the the stage production is more faithful to the book, as well as using all the music from the Disney movies. So, in and of course, this being this being Disney, 
in the movie version, Esmeralda survives. In the book, she did not. In the book, she was hung or hanged, excuse me, for being a witch. And in the movie, Quasimodo rescues her from her fate. In the musical, Esmeralda dies. So the ending is changed. The relationship between Quasimodo and Phoebus is also slightly different. Um, And definitely the care, the relationship between Quasimodo and Frollo is also slightly different in the musical. So they did try to bring this over to the States. I know that they previewed it at the Paper Playhouse in New Jersey, but ultimately didn't make it to Broadway. But um, I think they have a cast recording of it. So if you want to check it out, I think there is a cast recording of the English language production of Hunchback of Notre Dame. Um, so, yeah, I think, I don't know, do we have anything else to say on transforming the adaptations? No, I don't think so. All right, then. So let's move on to our next segments. What are we working on? Nothing. I, <laughs> this week has been kind of a garbage fire on my end, so no writing done. What about you? Still book two. Yeah. <laughs> Still writing. You know, I think I mentioned mm-hmm. last week, it's like going to the gym. I don't want to do it. But once I'm doing it, it's fine. But it's just yeah. opening up my computer and like opening up that file and getting back into it that I'm just like, I don't want to do this. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm still going. Kind of panicking about my deadline coming up, even though I've I already asked for an extension. I'm still kind of panicking about whether or not I'll make the second one. And it's kind of imperative that I make the second one because I'm going on vacation. So like, I need to have it done before I go on vacation. Um, so yeah, that's what I'm working on. So then are you reading anything? What are we reading? I am reading the Rose and the Dagger right now. Oh yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I'm very excited. I'm about halfway through. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very good and nothing else has come through from the library yet. So I think I'm just going to have to go to the bookstore and buy Crooked Kingdoms Kingdom, uh, <laughs> because I don't think I can wait anymore because I've heard so <laughs> much about it and I don't want to get spoiled. And that's it, really the issue. Like, yeah, I don't think you'll you be know? able to avoid getting spoiled for it. Yeah, so I have to read it before, you know, because it's that. It it just recently came out, so everyone right now is just kind of like, oh my god, Crooked Kingdom, but isn't saying anything more than, oh my god, Um, but that's not going to last indefinitely. So, yeah, Uh, so I'm going to probably pick up that. Something I did read today, which is not a book, but um, was the excerpt along with the cover reveal for The Hate You Give by... AC Thomas. Um, oh, such a good excerpt. Oh yeah. <laughs> like such, such a good excerpt. I've heard great things about this book. Um, I've, I know it's already been picked up for a film adaptation. Mm-hmm. Um, they even pushed up I've, the publication date. It was supposed to come out yeah. this in summer of 2017, but it's actually coming out February 28th. So everybody mark your calendars because it's going to be pretty big yeah. book, I think. I've heard so much great buzz about this book and the cover reveal came out today and it was accompanied by, um, quite a lengthy excerpt. I think maybe the entire first chapter and it's just, it was so good. 
It was so good. I was so upset that I couldn't immediately finish the entire book in one sitting. So I read that today too. I also read that today. Um, I am reading the midnight star, which I think I mentioned that I read before, but I am reading the midnight star. Mm -hmm. Um, Marie's books always have a way of gut punching me like her, the ending of her trilogies always seem to gut punch me. Well, granted, she's only written two, but both of them. <laughs> um, so I'm not going to give anything away if, if you guys have not yet read Midnight Star, but it's pretty good. Very dark, I think. Um, so reading that, I also started reading Saga, uh, which is graphic novel. I have heard great things. Oh my God, these are great. I don't know why I haven't read them sooner. Um, I mean, they're I'm reading them in trades, so they're pretty short. You know, it's only six issues, and it's about, like, less than 200 pages, and it's, you know, it's a graphic novel, so it goes quickly. I don't... I, it, I'm dying. I'm dying. I, I, I'm like, I need more. Um, it's sort of hard to explain to people exactly what Saga is about. You kind of just have to read it to... But the characters are so great. I love them, um, and it's funny, but it's also super heartbreaking because it's really, it's a story about a family, essentially. It's um, And so the parents are from two warring races, sort of. It's science fiction, or it's like science fantasy-ish, you know. It's not exactly hard science fiction, but they're from two warring races, and against all odds, they fall in love, and have a child together and the the child is essentially considered an abomination because of these two warring races and so oh it's so good though it's so good and you just i feel and care so much about these characters so i highly highly recommend saga um yeah i don't think i'm reading anything else now again writing on book Two don't really have a lot of time to read outside of that, um, and aside from the the books that I am already looking forward to, I haven't really had a chance to pick up anything yet. So that's it. Any off menu recommendations? I started watching Stranger Things. Yay! Finally, <laughs> David and I watched the first episode last night, so we're going to watch a little bit more tonight uh, and keep going. But you have been. You have been pestering me to watch it. My other friends have been pestering me to watch it. So I have finally bit the bullet. I'm going to do it. I'm going to watch Stranger Things. Yay! Yay! Uh, to go along with that, I would highly recommend Lin-Manuel Miranda's SNL performance. Uh-huh. Because he did do a Stranger Things spoof on SNL, which was quite funny. Also, the Crucible cast party segment was also really okay, funny. Okay, that was a documentary of the cast parties that I had in high school. <laughs> like they're like with no hyperbole, with no exaggeration, no embellishment. That was the way that cast parties at my high school happened complete with the back rub chain and the weird teacher who came and it was kind of awkward <laughs> and trying to flirt with all the gay boys who are completely obviously not into you, but you don't really get that yet. Like the entire thing was amazing. 
and I loved watching it, and it made my heart happy. <laughs> well, obviously, since you know Lynn was a theater kid, too, oh, in yeah. school, so it's like drawing so specifically on, I'm sure, his experience. Being a theater kid must be like a universal experience. Like, it must be, which is so <laughs> funny. But like, even at the end when they're all singing and they're all trying to like out riff each other, like, yeah. it was like, oh my God, yes. <laughs> like, this is what we did. We were obnoxious. Ugh. I was not a theater kid, so I don't know. I, I feel like I missed out. <laughs> you did. <laughs> you did for sure. But I am here to tell you that that skit is 100% authentic. I don't know. A lot of people think I'm a theater kid because most of my f- adult friends were. <laughs> so they just naturally assume that I was into theater in high school, which I was not. Um, but you love musical theater now, too, and you seem so... You know, you were a creative kid, and so it seems like I can see, I can imagine that you would have been, but I know that you weren't. No, I was a visual art artist, so that was, like, my cohort was, mm-hmm. you know, visual arts. I mean, I've always liked theater, but L.A. doesn't necessarily have a huge theater scene. It's in, we know, we do get shows on tour, but it's not quite the same as it is if you live in the Northeast, you know, and, and New York is really close by. I did see some theater and plays. Like I did take acting in high school, but it wasn't. I wasn't part of the theater theater kid scene, I guess. And then, but my roommates in college were theater majors. So, um, and I went to NYU. So I went had a lot of theater major friends. So all of my adult friends kind of like grew out from that like initial meeting of theater people. Um, so yeah, a lot of people are like, oh, I thought you were a theater kid. Nah, nah. <laughs> I came to it late. It was a late bloomer. <laughs> um, so I don't believe we have questions this week, but as okay. always, if you do have any questions, you are more than welcome to send them into us and we will answer it on the podcast. Um, but so then we can move on to what you're saying. So the reviews that you guys do leave us. Oh, I do have one other off-menu recommendation before we continue, mm. which is why author Maureen Johnson has a podcast about the election. Oh, it's called <laughs> Says Who, um, and it's quite it's uh, it well the, she describes it with her co-host as a coping mechanism, and I think that's pretty accurate. And it has you know funny skits and stuff like that. I, so I do highly recommend it. I also recommend Maureen Johnson's books if you have not read them. Um, so so that that's that's an off-menu recommendation I forgot to mention. So now let us move on to what you're saying. And this review is from Sarah Crawford. Informative and entertaining. I'm still in the beginning stages of my publishing journey, and I've learned so much about the publishing industry from this podcast. I particularly love their episodes on being on submission because I haven't found many people to commiserate with about how long I've been on submission, but this podcast makes me feel like I'm not the only writer obsessively checking her email and crying. Parentheses, kidding, kidding, but not really. This podcast is a must for writers on the traditional publishing journey. Their discussions about craft are also amazing, and they inspire me to keep writing. Parentheses, side note, they are also responsible for my new Hamilton obsession. 
You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I guess we can revisit submission at some other point, but it is really hard. I understand it's hard because you can't really discuss it. It's not a universal experience. So it feels like you're in this isolated reality where, you know, unless people are also on submission with you, they really can't commiserate. And even then, because everyone's submission story is so different, it's hard to commiserate with someone who is only on submission for a very short period of time before getting a deal. And also really hard to commiserate with someone who's been on submission much longer than you. Mm-hmm. So I, I I do. I do sympathize. I've been there. It's it's tough, but, you know, you got to find your writer tribe and some, being on submission is a great place to start, I think. <laughs> all right. That's all for this week. Next week, we'll be continuing our adaptation discussion with trans media adaptations, which we will define a little bit more clearly next time. <laughs> As always, if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Pickle, or your podcast provider of choice. Also, if you like us, please rate and review when you get a chance, as it helps other listeners find the podcast. If you want more pub crawl goodness, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also follow us on Twitter at PubCrawlBlog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at PublishingCrawl. You can follow me, JJ, at SJJones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S, on Twitter or my website, sjjones.com. And you can follow me, Kelly, at BookishChick on Twitter or Instagram, or on my website, penandparsley.com. Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, author of Vengeance Road, available now wherever books are sold. If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com or send us an ask through Tumblr. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. Bye. Please review when you get a chance as it help as it You can like okay here we are <laughs> <laughs> having the worst outro okay